Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Five years of abusing drugs and stealing money from the federal government, Kevin Niebuhr lost everything, and he nearly lost custody of his daughter. In desperation, he cried out, Lord, if you do something decent with my life, you can have every day from here on out. And God is making good on Kevin's promise, and instead of using drugs and coping with his addiction, using bodybuilding workouts, Kevin decided he would build a gym himself and plant a church through the connections that he has made there. After Kevin became a Christian, he met Tim. Tim and Kevin began having a relationship together. Tim was raised as Jehovah's Witness and wasn't allowed to salute the flag or attend birthday parties. This led Tim to severe isolation, and he was constantly picked on by other kids. And it didn't take long for Tim to start acting out in violence against his peers and even his own father. The older Tim got, the more Tim felt like he didn't belong anywhere, in or outside his family of faith. He met a Satanist in high school, and they began practicing the religion even though he didn't believe in it, saying... I just want to feel loved and accepted. Tim started smoking marijuana and started abusing drugs and alcohol daily, overdosing multiple times. Tim had a decent career as a tattoo artist, but continued his drug and alcohol problem, living with his wife and his daughter. Tim was jailed multiple times and had faced five felonies. And when all the charges against him were inexplicably dropped and he was released from prison, Tim decided he wasn't going to go back to his old way of life. But as soon as he finished his probation, he started selling drugs to supplement his income. He began spending roughly $4,000 a month on a toxic mix of cocaine and marijuana, methamphetamine, steroid, and more. And he worked nonstop, often going 40 to 50 hours without sleep. He cheated on his wife with multiple women. Kevin and his wife kept reaching out to Tim for tattoos and talking to him about Jesus and taking care of any needs that he had. After five years, Kevin couldn't stand being around Tim anymore. (laughs) Kevin walked away thinking he had failed. Deep in his despair, Tim remembered a Satanist song that he used to listen to that referenced the book of Revelation. So Tim looked up Revelation in the Bible, and and he and his wife nearly read the entire book that evening. And that moment was a turning point for Tim because he started listening to Bible apps while tattooing. (laughs) I thought scripture was really angry, but I learned it's a love story between a father and his children. He started giving his clients a discount if they read the Psalms while he gave them a tattoo. Tim began to change. He realized something, that the more and more he talked about Jesus, the more and more he had a less of a desire to talk about violence and drugs and women. He stopped selling drugs, got rid of all of his drug paraphernalia, and everything he, brought, everything he bought with drug money. He filled his dumpster behind his house to the brim four times with all of his possessions. And Tim called Kevin. Can you, call, can you come down to the shop for a second and read me the Bible? Because I want to receive the Holy Spirit. Tim can't help but share his faith with everyone he meets and tells everyone he can about Jesus. And that is the life change that can happen through Jesus. Jesus can change lives. And when I first read that story several years ago, 
It appeared in the Alliance Life magazine, and it, and it highlights a major core piece of the life of the church, which is what we are going to be about today, and that is relationships. At the very core of the church is relationships. And if you have your Bible today, we're going to be in John 4, if you brought it with you, or if you have it on your phone, John chapter 4, it's on 752 of that Bible in front of you. Um, you can just kind of put your finger there. We, hey, I just want to say we at this church value the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures um, if this isn't your home church, make sure you find one that does preach and teach from the Scriptures faithfully. 752, and it'll be on the screen in a second. And I'm calling this series kind of the heart of the church, the core concepts of what it means to the nature of the church, whose it is, and the heart behind it all. What does it look like to be the church, to be a part of the church, and what does this look like to all kind of come together? You see, at the very heart of the church, we said this last week, is Jesus. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. And there's this saying that Jesus says, there's a statement that he makes in Matthew's gospel, and there's this ministry statement that he makes, and he's about to predict his own death, and his followers have followed him for years. They have given up much to follow him, and they're placing, I just want to place myself in the feet of the disciples, and he's about to leave them, and he's about, he's about to go, and they've placed everything they have to follow him. I'd be a little bit confused and wonder what was happening and what was going on if the person I'd followed was going to leave soon. And you see, at this point, they're in an all-time low of discouragement, and some of those disciples have fallen off, and it's a small band of disciples. Jesus went from doing miracles to doing hard teachings, and now some people have just left and have deserted him. And Jesus made makes this foundational statement to Peter in chapter 16. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? Church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And he says this statement. When he says this, he's going to build the church, that Jesus is going to build his church, and it's going to come through the work and the witness of Jesus, his life and his death, his resurrection and his ascension. And I don't know about you, but when I think of a gate, I think of a gate as something that kind of keeps things contained, and it keeps things kind of contained in this. You see, death itself will not stop the church of Jesus Christ. Death itself will not overtake the church, meaning nothing is going to stop the church of Jesus Christ. It won't be held back, nor will the plans be thwarted. Nothing will stop the church. If death cannot stop the church, nothing can stop the church of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus who holds the church together. And it's through sometimes like the shifting and sort of the chaotic world in which we live in, we hang on to the promise of Jesus. And the gift is the church through Jesus. And the gift is the church. We kind of think like sometimes we think with the promise of Jesus is like, we think that like maybe this will come and go, or maybe the church, once the ideal circumstances in our culture or like the wind dies down, or like there's got to be this picture-perfect idea of like what our culture needs to be. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Amen? Amen? And we're awake. Okay, amen. Like he's going to build his church and it doesn't, nothing's going to stop it. Nothing will stop his church. We may think like that's the, the climate's got to be right and all these things, but we have the authority of Jesus. So we have the authority that he's going to build his church no matter what. And it doesn't stop there. But as we as the church are fixated and bound by Jesus, united by Christ, that makes its way down into the relationships of the church. And it's Jesus who is ref reflected. If we make Jesus the center of everything we do, it's reflected in the relationships and all the aspects of church life and church community life. You see, the church dedicated on the worship of God and takes seriously the teachings of Jesus as a church that is a people who will influence relationships with those inside and outside the church. Deep and wide, as the old Sunday school song says, deep and wide, 
deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. The higher in worship we go to Jesus, the wider our influence goes in relationship to, uh, and influence goes in our community. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, so today, these relationships, having the right heart to cultivate this, those relationships, you might be asking yourself this question today. How can I minister to others when my own heart is tired? How can I do this? How can I love somebody else when my own heart's tired? When my heart's worn down, how might we be able to follow Jesus and then extend that invitation to others? How can I bring people the truth of Jesus and the hope of the gospel when my circumstances are the way that they are? We're in John chapter 4. This is a critical moment in Jesus' ministry. He's had large crowds follow him. And even when you read through the account of his ministry, you can find him so many times trying to get away, trying to get away and get alone. And even in the midst of so much going on, we find this amazing encounter in John 4, the hustle and bustle of this. And as we walk through this, we'll walk through it and we'll, 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 kind of, we'll talk through it all. But here's sort of the big picture John 4, it's in a John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John's, the last gospel of the New Testament. John chapter 4, early on in his ministry, there's a guy in chapter 3 of John named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is sort of um, is, is, is a person in the upper echelon of Jewish society of the day. And so he's sort of one of the elites, sort of in the Jewish ruling class of the day. Um, and so Jesus has a conversation with this man named Nicodemus. And so he is curious, though, about Jesus and he approaches Jesus at night. And in the middle of chapter 3, we find probably the most well-known verse of the Bible. It says this, For God so loved the what? The world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. And if you're, a, if you're in that day, and this is John 3 and Nicodemus and Jesus telling Nicodemus this story. And if you're a Jew in the first century, this sort of verse doesn't really sit with you very well. Because God loving the world for the Israelites, for the Jews, like he was supposed to come for them. And God saying, like, I love the world. I, just, I gave myself for the world. I gave myself so that everybody can come to know me. For the entire world, that was kind of, that rubbed people the wrong way. In that day. And Jesus totally flips things on its head. And in fact, Nicodemus, he's part of the Pharisees, part of the spiritually serious, uh, very spiritually serious. And you find across Jesus' ministry, he often gets butt heads with these two groups of people called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And even he includes them in his ministry to say that even the most religious of observers of that day, including the Pharisees and Sadducees, even the most religious of religious people, of the day is saying to them that you need me just as much as they need you too. Even to the most religious of religious people, he's saying, your need for me is also just as great as their need for me as well. And so some people like the Pharisees and Sadducees look down on people in society and your need, their need, your need for me is just as great as their need for me too. And so it's Jesus is like, don't get that twisted. You also, there is a even level playing field here between all this. So John 4 verse 1 goes like this, verse 1 of, of John 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he, was, that, he, that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. It's about a 70 mile trip in those days, 70 miles between those two. 
Now he what? Had to go through what? Samaria. So he came to his town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This is an Old Testament story. Uh, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. So Jesus is tired. He's had teachings. We've said like he's tried to get away. He's tried to, he's just tired. And he's from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon, or maybe some of your Bibles say it was the sixth hour. So did you notice he had to go through Samaria, okay? So just a little bit of a cultural kind of thing here that Jesus, that the Jesus those few words are not very typical in the first century. century. Um, if you notice that map behind me, most people avoided Samaria, in that day. Most people went the long way around, but Jesus went straight through Samaria, right to the middle, from Judea to Galilee. And this feud goes back centuries. Jews and Samaritans completely avoided each other. And in fact, there was such tension, this tension there, they disdained one another. And Jesus travels through Samaria for a purpose. He was intentional about reaching the overlooked, reaching the unreached, and reaching those who maybe are more difficult to reach or unlikely to reach. And he was on purpose going through Samaria. Maybe you are in that place. Maybe you can relate to yourself in that place. Maybe you're kind of like wanting to kind of press pause. Like, can I, can I like press pause on the mission of God? Can I like press, can I do this like Tuesdays? Um, maybe you can find yourself in that place. Like maybe, like you're, you're, maybe you're feeling like Jesus. Like, I'm tired. I'm just tired. I'm tired. Maybe you want to press pause on that and you might retreat. Maybe walking kind of around the relationship rather than toward it and toward this moment. This particular, this is another little cultural moment here um, in those days that, that she, this woman is going to the well at noon. That's the hottest part of the day. That was not custom in that day. In fact, it was custom to go um, normally very early in the morning or late at night. So she is going to the well at the hottest part of the day. And in, in those days, in that culture, in that climate, that would have been extremely hot. And she's doing this because she wants to avoid talking to everybody else. That was very not normal in that day. And so she's coming at the time of the day that no one will see her and no one will notice her. And in that, the well in those days was sort of this kind of this cultural place for this cultural, um, this cultural kind of center where the townspeople kind of gathered around and heard the latest news. So that's kind of this whole, this, that's kind of the well in that day. So they all had to come to the well. She's coming to avoid people. So ver- verse six is this, as we continue on. I'm seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? And so this is sort of the cultural thing here. It's like Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It's just rifts here. And the, the tension here goes deep and deep and deep in decades. So, he, so for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So that's, we're told that in parentheses. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have, give, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, 
Everyone who drinks this water will, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. And she replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman replied, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, this in term of endearment in that day, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and in what? Truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. When we are on mission with Jesus, our hearts should be willing to engage in genuine connection with other people, even if we don't believe it'll make a difference. Notice this interaction. This, this whole conversation does not take place in the traditional kind of religious, uh, religious temple courts, but it takes place at a well. And a well was the social center of the day. And Jesus linked everyday human interaction with his mission. He didn't regulate the mission of God to a particular building or a place, but every day where we are, who we're with, is an incredible opportunity to bear witness in our communities. And it was an unlikely person in that culture who, that, that had this conversation, very unlikely in this culture, that so, this would have had this conversation with Jesus. And in fact, it also goes a step further because in those days, in fact, a Jew wouldn't actually talk to a woman even in public in those days. And a male, it's just even this cultural thing. Jesus kind of crosses all those boundaries. And he's like, I just want a relationship with this person. You see, maybe who is that person or friend or neighbor or kind of an acquaintance that doesn't know Jesus? Maybe it's someone you've been praying for. Maybe you've been at that relationship a long time. Who is that person? Maybe someone that, you don't, that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it's a long, long time. An unlikely person. And this was an unlikely person that had this encounter with Jesus. I'm reminded of this story that engaging Samaria is integral to our Christian calling. Samaria in those days was the places that Jews did not want to go to. And it's kind of like a sort of a disdain for that kind of place. Whether maybe it's a place, maybe it's a part of town, maybe it's the way, it's the way of Jesus to go there and to meet those kind of people. Jesus is doing something there with all of his disciples around. Those disciples are here in this moment. And he knows very well the history that goes be between these two groups. He knows it very, very well. And reminds me that God is just as, as much at work in those places. That God is at work even in those places that we may not think about. Dale Bruner says this about this passage. Yet deep things happen in these externally, out of the way, less impressive places. God is no more a respecter of places than he is of persons. Wherever he is at work is a very significant place. 
Don't diminish the fact of God working in your life. Deep in the valleys of western Pennsylvania, God is at work. And we must be attentive to that. That just kind of stuck with me. And that like gripped me this week. Wherever he is, he is at work. Like, as I made my way this week, I just, I had this picture of this whole thing. As I made my way through Walmart, Walmart, out of the way, less impressive place. Sorry, Walmart, Sam, you know, know, sorry. As I made my way through Walmart, the football game, restaurant, and friends. God's at work. He's at work there. And some, we just kind of miss that. We kind of like lose sight of that sometimes. God goes where his people go. And he goes in and out of those less impressive places that we may deem less impressive. From a map, from a world's point of view, it's unfortunate. Newcastle is unfairly labeled as a less impressive place. <laughs> but not so where the gospel is. Not so where the good news of Jesus is. Not so where in the community where the gospel is preached, where his spirit lives. Not so where his people are. Like there's a God and there's a gift of the Holy Spirit. God is there because the gift of his son is for everybody. It crosses barriers. It crosses lines. And the gift of his son is not relegated to specific people or people who have it all together. This is for everybody. Jesus is for everybody. The gift of this is for everybody. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. And God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And this, another author says it like this. John 4 challenges us to take a risk to examine the margins of our world and to cross them. I'm impressed that a trip to Samaria meant nothing short of a risk for Jesus. It meant leaving the usually traveled highway that was well-known and comfortable. And I don't know what this looks like for you, leaving the, what's comfortable behind. I mean, you may be asking yourself, like, maybe you're not the most extroverted. Maybe you're not the most outgoing person. Maybe you're just kind of curious to know. Maybe you're like, my life has not been interesting Maybe you're sort of asking yourself, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm not too great with my words. Maybe you're just trying to figure out how to go about this all, perhaps. And I just want to say, like, genuine kindness and taking interest in someone else's story it can make an eternal difference. Genuine kindness and taking interest in somebody's life can make an eternal difference. And people are thirsty for connection. People are genuinely thirsty for connecting with others. Notice the woman in the well story. Jesus connects with her first. He draws this out of her. He kind of draws this this story out of her and kind of draws her to repentance. But it's Jesus, and he knows everything about this woman, but he connects with her. He draws this conversation out of her because he knows it's the best thing for her, and he connects with her. So if you think practically about this for for a minute, maybe you're not the most outgoing. Maybe it's a little bit intimidating. You can connect with someone and show genuine kindness, and that can go a long, long way in pointing people to Jesus. Maybe it's taking a meal to somebody that's going through a difficult time and a difficult season. Maybe it's getting a cup of coffee with someone and sending a text to them and saying, hey, let's get together for an hour because I care about you. Maybe it's sending a few texts to folks and saying, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you and your family today. I'm thinking of you and praying for your family today. John 13, 35 reminds us how, of how crucial this is to the local church and to the church. The new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples 
if you what? Love one another. And we could ask ourselves this question, what does love require of me toward my neighbor? When I think of the Samaritan story, what might love look like to people that we may ordinarily might pass up? When I think of this story, I think of the folks that we ordinarily might pass up, simply overlook in our circles, whom society may unfairly and unjustly look down upon. I'm challenged by this story every time I read it. As I was reading through it, reading through it, kind of walking away from it, reading, coming back, putting this together, I'm challenged by that. I was brought to tears thinking about the folks whom God, that in His grace and kindness, has tapped me on the shoulder and reminded me, saying, Landon, you know all those people you're walking by? I love them. They aren't far from my hand. I'm like, God, can somebody else do it? Can I, like, can, can, there's somebody else maybe who can pass the baton? It's like, Landon, this is knocking on the door. I love those people you're walking by. (laughs) They're not far from me, as we know from this story. They're not far. They're close. Landon, will you bring my presence to them? Will you bring my presence to them? The next section of verses is the disciples come on the scene. It's verse 27 that says his disciples were finding him, and it says that they're surprised that he's talking and conversing with a woman. It wasn't custom in that day to happen in public, at least. And so he's there with his disciples around him, and I can picture the hills of Samaria in the distance and overlooking the town. You can imagine this kind of scenario here where it's got the whole city at large kind of in the distance, and he's got the hustle. You can hear the hustle and bustle of the town in the distance. Jesus gathers those disciples around him and says, don't you have a saying, it says in verse 35, he says, um, don't you have a saying, it's four months, still four months until harvest? I tell you, open up your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. So Jesus gathers his disciples around, kind of has this teaching moment. And it's the Lord in his kindness that even kind of in this moment where he's gathered his disciples around and for us as a church, and he gathers his, us around and it's Jesus kind of having this pep talk, kind of like a halftime of a game. This is bigger than a game, obviously, but you kind of know what I'm saying. It's like the Lord who kind of gathers them around, and it's the Lord who's like, the fields are ripe for harvest. The fields are ripe for harvest in Newcastle. Through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the story of this woman at the well, through the lens of the story of Kevin, there are stories and stories of folks out there who are thirsty the life-changing message of Jesus, that at the very core of all of our stories and at the heart of the local church is the life-changing message of Jesus. And this is exactly what happens in John chapter 4. You see, the message of Jesus will and can have a very profound impact on a wide range of unexpected people. I am met with challenge and I am met by surprise at this passage that it's a very simple but very powerful message for all people. That even the unlikely that we may not think would ever be receptive to Jesus are, and I've known that from my own story, This conversation, this interaction that happens, totally out of character, 
Yet it's the Jesus, this gospel is for all people, the message of Jesus for everyone. One person wrote it like this, the Holy Spirit with the Father's full salvation through the Son's finished work is free. Warning, what God makes free, let no man make costly. Receive, the price has been paid, receive the gift freely. Jesus says, in verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, the gift of Jesus is simply a gift, a free gift of grace. No one deserves to earn it. We just need to receive it by faith and believe. And that is all. No gimmicks and no prerequisites required. This is living water, better than anything else we will ever taste in this life. Because in our deepest and most reflective moments of life, our quietest moments, we have wondered and we have asked these questions. We've asked this wonders. We've wondered if there's just, this is all that there is to this life. There has to be more. In our deepest and most reflective moments, we have to wonder, there's just got to be something more and greater in store for my life. And as followers of Jesus, we are all called to the mission of God and called to relationships. So here's kind of some points I want to draw from from this. You see, if your heart is tired, If your heart is tired, remember the gift of eternal life that Jesus gives. Remember the gift that Jesus gives, like he died for you so that you can live forever. No one can ever take that gift from you. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been promised life and life eternal. He lives in you. Amen? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only what? Son, that he gave his life for you and you get to enjoy him forever. Forever. That's a gift that keeps on giving. And I wrote that down this week. I wrote that down, the gift that keeps on giving. It's like, that's kind of cheesy, but I'll say it. Gift that keeps on giving, Christmas time. Um, Gift that keeps on giving, right? At the core of making disciples is relationships. And investing and in keeping those relationships at the core and the center of all that we do at this church. Because I believe it's reflected in how people do come to faith. You see, at every tier of relationship, there's kind of these, there's these tiers of like where people are oftentimes of faith. Maybe it's hostile or indifferent. Maybe curious. Maybe somebody kind of moves to the curious stage or actively seeking stage or surrender stage. That the key to all of those stages is relationship. That is the key to ministry. That's the key to all of this is relationship. And sometimes we kind of, we assume that if we meet one person and that person is hostile, then we kind of think they're all like that. But that's not the case. Relationship is often this barometer in which God uses to bring people to faith, and we all can do that. And whether you're newer or younger in faith, or maybe you assume you might not know enough or don't, don't, don't know, you don't know enough or maybe intimidated by this, every tier of this is relationship. And the link between all of this is relationship. I've seen that in my own life. Relationships, combining, covering prayer and relationship is the key to being on mission. And being kind and intentional and fueled by the Spirit is the food that we need. Being, a kind, being kind can have an eternal impact on the life of a person. And compassionate is the food that we need. You see, the message of Christianity is not a, simply a bumper sticker slogan about doing good things or being a better person. It is a call to worship the God of the universe. It's a call to the soul-expanding and heart-enlarging, world-shaking worship of the God who reigns over all. It's a call to turn from our sinful rebellion and be saved from our self-worship by the power of Jesus Christ. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace near the end of his life, summed up the message of Christianity perfectly. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I'm a great Savior and that Christ is a great 
say, I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. At the end of his life, that's what he remembered, two things. This is the last story, the wrap-up. It's a story about a harbor town located in a treacherous area where boats frequently capsize on the rocks in bad weather. The town was known for its faithful rescue team. And whenever the bell sounded, a group of men rode quickly to the scene of the disaster, risking their lives to remove sailors from sinking vessels or to pluck them from heaving waves. After a few years, the town collected money to build a rescue station near the shore to store all of their equipment, thus making their rescue work easier. Also, special training was offered to others who wanted to become rescuers. The operation became efficient, saving hundreds of lives from the raging waters. But as time went by, comforts and conveniences were added to the building. Cupboards full uh, full of food, a dining room, a lounge filled with stuffed chairs and recliners and sleeping quarters. The lovely building became a club where townspeople loved loved to eat and meet and play games and socialize. The bell sounded when a wreck occurred, but only a handful of people responded. Later, no one even bothered to answer the rescue call, for they didn't want to leave the comfortable club. The church is not a country club where to simply eat and to recline and to sit back. We are a rescue operation on mission to seek and to save the lost. We are a hospital for sinners, a place for the broken a home for the lost, and a heart for the forgiven. Amen? The time is too short, the gospel is too urgent, and eternity is at stake. Let's be a church known for our rescue of souls and this relationship with those who do not yet know Jesus. Amen? Amen. Worship team, will you come on up?